What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On November 12, 2002, Bournemouth police receive a call from a terrified 14-year-old boy and his 11-year-old sister. They have just returned home from school to find their mother is dead. The uh, initial response would be made by uniformed police officers as soon as they realised it was a murder. I received the call and I drove to Bournemouth and I took command of that murder investigation. The woman is local seamstress, 48-year-old Heather Barnett. Her children had returned home to discover her body lying on the bathroom floor, brutally mutilated. When we look at the, the mutilation of Heather's body, both of her breasts have been cut off. She's got some hair in her hand. The, there's a glove um, down by her underwear. Um, so what's happened here is that this offender has completely humiliated his victim. He's taken the, the very kind of symbols of her femininity, her, her breasts, and taken that away. So this is, this is a very distinct signature. It's an incredibly unique thing. Police arrive at the scene to find the victim's children being comforted by a neighbor. Neither police nor the children realize they are being consoled by the very man who murdered their mother. And it would take another eight years and the discovery of another body 1,400 miles away to finally bring Heather Barnett's killer to justice. We never left that case. Even as the years progressed, you worked long, hard days, and you were always thinking about that case, you know, about the children, about the horrific scene, and about that always the ongoing risk that this man, who was walking about, driving about Bournemouth, presented to the public. This, this man is truly evil. He prepared some time in advance to kill this lovely single lady who's bringing up two lovely children. He killed her in the most horrific manner, mutilating her body, and knowing the most evil part of him is he knew that the people that would find their mother mutilated in the worst possible way was her two young children. Are you telling me that somebody who could do that is not evil? This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. Each episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Danilo Restivo. Danilo Restivo was born on April 3, 1972, in Sicily, Italy, before his family moved to a town called Potenza in southern Italy. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley describes what Restivo's childhood was like. 
Potenza, which is a small Italian city, um, which is, is quite a way away from all the other cities, not just geographically, but, but also culturally. This is a city where the church is very influential. His, his family were amongst the great and good of Potenza, so he grew up in, in quite a privileged position. His family were quite powerful. His father was the, the director of the, the local branch of the, the National Library. Um, he was, was quite an influential figure within the local community. If you would say his father's name, everybody would know who that was. Despite his family's popularity, Restivo grew up as somewhat of an outsider to the other kids around him. He's the, the kind of boy who would have been the target for, for bullies at school. He was the kind of boy who would never really fit in with his peers. But, but I think in those, those early days, he got a sense that I'm an outsider. I'm not one of this group, so I'm going to make up my own rules. In 1993, at the age of 21, Restivo became interested in a young girl in town, Elisa Claps. Former Detective Superintendent Phil James and former criminal psychologist Chris Carter comment. In 1993, he was a young guy and it was clear he had an infatuation for a girl called Elisa Claps. Elisa Claps was 16 and she had said to friends that Restivo was becoming a bit of a problem, that he was chasing after her. He was awkward as well in the way he talked to women, um, which is, it, it's, it's hard for you to try, try to talk to somebody when you, you look awkward and you act awkward. Although Elisa made clear to friends that she was not interested in Restivo, she agreed to meet him at the local church one Sunday afternoon. She had arranged to meet up with him outside of the church in Potenza in order that she could say to him, look, I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to go out with you, and can you leave me alone? She's a good, kind person. Um, there are many stories of her going out of her way to, to help other people in, in the community. And I think she's somebody who feels quite sympathetic towards Restivo. She sees this lad who is an outcast, who's sort of picked on and bullied by the people. And I think she, she feels a, a sense of kind of care towards him. So when he asks whether she would come and meet him, she goes along with it because she doesn't for a million years think that, that his intentions are bad. Elisa was seen entering the church with Restivo. It would be the last time she was seen alive. When Elisa didn't return home, her family reported her missing to the police. A number of inquiries were made to find her. She was never found, and she was considered a missing person. However, there were a number of complications or issues which the Italian police were not overly concerned about following up. We know, for example, that sometime after Elisa went missing, she supposedly sent an email to her family saying, hi, I've left the country, I'm not here any longer, don't worry about me, I'm having a new life, everything's wonderful, uh, and just forget about me. A number of inquiries were made in relation to that, and that email wasn't sent from abroad, it was sent from an internet cafe in Potenza, and it was sent at a time when Restivo was in that internet cafe. During the investigation, police missed some vital information that could have quickly led them to Restivo. 
he had a, a history of, of taking young girls behind a, a curtain and up to the first floor in the church. There was an injury on his hand um, around about the time of her disappearance. And none of this was really scrutinized. None of it was really looked into by the police. In fact, Restivo had a long history of questionable interactions with women. These strange habits were well known by the people in his small town. He approaches them, and when they reject him, he turns on them, essentially, and he calls them and he plays the theme tune of his favorite film, Profondo Rosso, which is quite scary, quite intimidating music. And this is, this is a really odd thing to be doing, but what he's trying to do is trying to instill fear in these girls. He's trying to say, oh, well, you've rejected me, so I'm now going to play a bit of a game with you. And I think that really does just tell us about his underlying psychopathy. He's somebody who likes playing with people. But without a body or any evidence she had been murdered, Elisa Claps was labeled a missing person. But Elisa wasn't missing. She'd never left town. When Elisa rejected his romantic advances, Restivo killed her and hid her body within the church, a fact that would remain a mystery for 18 years. In 1993, Elisa Claps was declared missing after disappearing one Sunday afternoon. She was last seen meeting up with Danilo Restivo, a local boy who had romantic feelings for her. But Elisa was not missing. She had been killed by Restivo, and her body had been hidden inside the church where they had met. Many people in town suspected foul play at the hands of Restivo. He was the last person to see her alive. Many believed his family connections to police and authorities allowed him to remain uncharged. Former Detective Superintendent Phil James elaborates on the social hierarchy. In Italy, certain positions within a town are considered uh, high-powered and influential, and Restivo's father was the chief librarian. And in Italy, the chief librarian is a significant and powerful individual. Restivo thought he had gotten away with murder, but Elisa's family never gave up. With the town suspecting him, Restivo was unable to continue his usual harassment of women. In 2002, he turned 30 and decided to start over in Bournemouth, a town in the south of England. I think when Restivo arrives in the UK, he is a very dangerous individual because he's never faced any consequences for his actions. He's in a country where nobody knows his history, nobody can join the dots together. So he really is like a, a kid in a sweet shop. He's got every opportunity to continue offending and nobody really knows his background. Soon after settling in the UK, Restivo met an Italian woman on the internet. He quickly moved in with her. She's an, an older woman, she has a, a disability. She's more of a mother figure to him and she treats him as if he's a son. She looks after him, she cooks his meals. So he's, he's stepping into his well-established role as this child in a different location. Restivo's new home was across the street from 48-year-old seamstress Heather Barnett. Just six months after moving in, he went to visit Heather claiming he was interested in having her do some work for him. And Mr. Estivo had been over and asked if she would make a set of curtains for him as a Christmas present for his then 
partner. But Restivo wasn't interested in curtains. Instead, he had identified Heather as his next victim. On November 12, 2002, he paid his neighbor another visit. They'd gone through to uh, the back of the property, which was her room for doing her sewing and seamstress-type work. And from there, it appears that she tried to make an escape from the individual. Things were knocked over. She'd moved through into the lounge where he'd obviously caught hold of her, and he'd hit her several times with a hammer. Uh, her skull was fractured, and she would have been dead in the lounge very shortly afterwards. Uh, from that point, she was dragged through the lounge, through the hallway, and into a bathroom. Restivo had brutally murdered Heather in her own home. And Restivo's cruelty didn't end with her murder. Criminal psychologist Dr. David Holmes says Restivo then went on to violently mutilate Heather's body. He cut the breasts off and placed them behind Heather's head. He also mutilated the rest of the body quite badly. This maybe would show that his obsession was not simply the hair, but possibly the cutting of hair and cutting itself. To cut someone's skin would possibly have also excited him. Mr. Restivo had spent a great deal of time um, considering what he was going to do. He must have planned that murder in great detail. Police discovered another chilling detail about the case, one they hoped would help lead them to the killer. Her body has been mutilated, but bizarrely, in her hands are cut head hair. It's cut head hair, but it's not her hair. It's hair which is alien from that scene. So you're trying to understand why somebody who's going to murder somebody has brought with them hair to a murder scene. In Heather's left hand was a lock of her own hair, and in the right, a lock of someone else's. This strange obsession with hair would eventually lead to Restivo's downfall. Well, many people would describe Restivo as a trichophile. He's got an obsession with hair. Paraphilia is a, a sexual attraction towards an inanimate object or a non-consenting party. Because when you cut somebody's hair and you, you take a piece of that hair, you're taking part of them, and it, it's making you feel quite powerful. But this is really odd behavior. It's incredibly abnormal behavior. When police arrived at the scene, they were greeted by Restivo and his partner, who were looking after Heather's two young children. Well, the children discovered their mother's body, and, and not only that, but Restivo was one of the, the first people on the scene and, and appeared to be comforting them. But this isn't particularly surprising to me. When you have an offender like Restivo, he's quite proud of what, what he's done. So it's, it's not enough for him to mutilate his victim's body. He wants to see the impact of his actions on the people around the victim. Uh, and that is enhancing his enjoyments and enhancing his, his sense of, of power over these people. Since he was at the scene, police took a statement from Restivo. He explained to police that he had been out all day. When he arrived home, he discovered Heather's distraught children outside of the house. We started to look at Mr. Restivo, but 
From the very beginning, we were being told he had a strong alibi that explained where he was all day. So uh, immediately you think, well, it can't be him. So you start to look at other areas. And it wasn't until other issues started to develop with Mr. Estivo that it was necessary to go back and look at his alibi and say, how strong is this alibi? With such a weak alibi, police decided to look into Restivo. Because he'd been at the scene, in any case, we were interested, we wanted his DNA so that we could either implicate or eliminate him from those inquiries. We started to ask questions about his relationship, if he, if he knew Heather, what involvement he had with Heather. Restivo told authorities about the curtains he'd ordered, which would later explain how he had access to the inside of Heather's house. When police searched Heather's house, they found plenty of evidence. There was a lot of blood about, and the training shoes worn by the killer left trails of uh, blood-splattered footprints around the house. But bizarrely, although they moved around the house, they, they never left and went to the, to the front door of the property. By carrying out forensic tests, could work out that the killer had moved around the house to a point in the lounge where there was a chair, and in our opinion, he had then changed his clothing. But according to forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton, police were unable to connect Restivo to the killing. Restivo would be what we describe as forensically aware. That means they know what sort of evidence they may be leaving. So he had the foresight to change his clothes. He had the foresight to change gloves. He had the foresight to try and get rid of bloodstains using bleach. He was aware of the sort of things that could be found that could link him to a crime, and he was doing what he could to prevent that happening. He comes extremely well prepared. He has a plan, he executes that plan, and then he leaves the house in fresh clothes that aren't going to cause concern to any passers-by. Police did find one clue that could help them tie Restivo to the crime scene, a green towel by the front door of Heather Barnett's house. We considered that the murderer had stopped, taken off his training shoes. Bizarrely, there was a chair and there was a green towel on it. That green towel had uh, blood on it, but we always believed that that green towel was alien to that house. Our belief was that that wasn't their towel and that it had been brought there by the killer. That towel was a constant main line of inquiry in order to try and identify the killer by his DNA. We knew that Heather's blood was on that towel, but there was a mixed profile in that blood, so it meant to say there was the profile of, of at least two individuals. Despite their suspicions, police were not able to match the foreign DNA to Restivo. It seemed he was going to slip from the grasp of police once again. 
Restivo is somebody who's used to, to getting away with his crimes. This has been something that he's been doing for a very long time, both in his native Italy and in the UK as well. So this is somebody who feels untouchable. He's never had to face any consequences for his actions. So he's got no reason to believe that things are going to change. So he's just going to carry on regardless. However, Detective Superintendent Phil James says police didn't give up on Danilo Restivo as the prime suspect. They knew from the beginning they were dealing with a dangerous man, and they were doing all they could to gather enough evidence against him. We shortly came to the conclusion that Daniela Restivo was the person that had killed Heather Barnett. He went over there during that morning and killed Heather Barnett, and then he knew that the persons that would find Heather are her two children a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old, and that they would come back and find that scene, you know, that's, that's beyond anybody's imagination and cruelty to do that. As police dug further into the case, cracks started to appear in Restivo's story. His alibi had, at first, seemed solid. But upon further investigation, what Restivo told them didn't add up. He had gone to a place for unemployed people to learn computer skills, uh, and the signing-in register showed that he'd signed in at a specific time, but when we looked at it again, the entry had been altered. It had been written over, so it said one time, and it also said another time. So it then indicated that perhaps that alibi wasn't as good as first thought. And when detectives looked into his past in Italy, their suspicions only grew. It was about six months into that inquiry when uh, one of the detectives working on the case came into my office and said, boss, I need to speak to you. I've done a lot of research on the internet and we've managed to find details of a girl who went missing in Potenza in 1993 and there is a link to Daniello Restivo. Uh, soon after, we started making inquiries about Elisa's death but Elise's disappearance was never solved. And, says forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton, that made it difficult to link her to Restivo. In the case of Eliza Claps, to start with, there wasn't even a body. Running a murder investigation, if you can't even prove somebody's dead, let alone how they died, is clearly far more difficult. Back in the UK, although there was a body, there wasn't enough hard evidence to arrest Restivo for murder. For the time being, he was a free man, allowed to carry on his daily life. But police were zeroing in, and a strange habit of Restivo's was about to be discovered. That would shed new light on the investigation. By March 2004, nearly two years after the murder of Heather Barnett, police were convinced Restivo was their culprit and a danger to the community. So they decided to put him under surveillance. Everywhere he went and the risk that he presented, we're always concerned, is today a day where he's going to kill another Heather Barnett? Is he walking around with a knife in his bag today? Then, in May that same year, investigators finally got a break in the case. We followed uh, Restivo for quite a while, and there was one specific incident that it still now chills me to think about it. He went down to an area called Throop. 
the edge of Bournemouth on the countryside. And on the morning in question, Restivo went down there. There were about half a dozen ladies on their own walking their dogs in this isolated area. And Restivo buried himself in a bush and was clearly watching these individuals. Well, when we look at Restivo's behaviour when he's under surveillance, this is the height of summer. Um, he's walking around with gloves on, he's got his hood up, um, he, he's got waterproof trousers on, he's filmed changing his clothes, and the police see that he's observing women from a distance as well. He's very clearly out hunting for women. Afraid that he was planning to kill again, Detective Superintendent Phil James says police moved in. I arranged for two uniform officers to go down, check him out. Mr. Restivo was wearing two sets of clothing. He had one set of clothing and then he had another set on top and a nylon a waterproof jacket. So very similar to Heather's murder where he's got, he's took two sets of clothing with him and changed into one. He's down there in the same. The police stopped Restivo and searched his bag. He had gloves, he had a filleting knife, he had other material in there, and it was just horrific. And so he was he was brought in, he was arrested, but he explained everything. It's perfectly easy. You know, I was well, I'm wearing two sets of clothing because I was exercising and I want to lose some weight and it helps me perspire. Uh, and I, I can't remember the explanation for the knife, but it was, oh, I've been somewhere and I just happened to still have it in my bag. I've just bought it or something. And again, extremely concerning, but as far as the Crown Prosecution Service were concerned, it wasn't that final piece of the jigsaw, and it didn't prove Steve had killed Heather Barnett. Criminal psychologist Dr. David Holmes weighs in. I think Restivo became aware of the idea that the police were interested in him and that he could have been connected to the murder, but he had an explanation for every part of his bizarre behaviour. He felt that he was in control of that information and he actually did envision himself carrying on and committing further crimes. Although authorities were certain they had their murderer, Restivo couldn't be charged with the murder of Heather Barnett. Police needed more substantiation. There was still one clue from the crime scene that was unaccounted for, the mystery hair found in Heather's hand. Police thought the suspect may have cut it from a stranger to throw them off, so turned to the public for more information. Appeals were broadcast in the UK and in Restivo's hometown of Potenza, Italy, to find out if anyone had information about a man cutting strangers' hair. And then you suddenly get a call and they say, Hi, I'm such and such from Potenza. Daniel Restivo cut my hair once. I was sat in a cinema and he was sat in the row behind and he took some of my head hair and cut it and took it away. And somebody else was saying... Oh, yeah, that happened to me. Daniel Restivo was well known for cutting women's hair. And when we came back and we started to ask the same question, had people in Bournemouth had their hair cut, women started to come forward to say, yeah, in fact, I was on one of the Bournemouth yellow buses and I had some hair cut and I looked round and there was a guy sat behind me. Or I went to the hairdressers once and... She said, you've got a big chunk of hair missing from the back of your hair. When has that happened? Restivo actually developed a paraphilia um, for hair. 
this may have been some originating um, situation where he felt, you know, sexually excited, etc., over um, contact with hair. His victims had their hair cut, um, often from behind. He, he wasn't in the social world. He was in a very focused, obsessive world. In June 2004, police questioned Restivo again. This time, they made a point to focus on this haircutting habit and brought in women who had been victims of it to identify him. We put Daniela Restivo on an identification parade, and in two instances, those women picked Daniela Restivo out as the man who had sat behind them on a local bus cut their hair and then got off the bus. We knew that he'd brought head hair into the murder scene and left it in uh, Heather's hand. Restivo said that, that when he held these women's hair in his hand, he said everything is, is visible and, and that he could see everything. It's making him realise I can, can take a piece of these women and I can possess them. He's got a real kind of a grandiose sense of himself, a real kind of elevated sense of his own power here. What lies behind Restivo's motivation to kill and, and mutilate women is a, a sense of power. So he does so in the, the most extreme way, in, in killing them and mutilating them and, and using their hair as, as something that he has that's part of them. Despite multiple women identifying Restivo, this was all considered circumstantial evidence. It was still not enough to convince the courts that Restivo could be charged with Heather's murder. This, this man is truly evil. He prepared some time in advance to kill this lovely single lady who's bringing up two lovely children. He killed her in the most horrific manner, mutilating her body. And knowing the most evil part of him is he knew that the people that would find their mother mutilated in the worst possible way was her two young children. Are you telling me that somebody who could do that is not evil? Restivo was once again released. To prove him guilty, the police needed to connect Restivo directly to the crime scene. Their hopes went back to the blood-covered green towel found in Heather's home. But they lacked forensic technology. The forensic technology and the forensic advances weren't there. But we kept going back to that green towel and saying, how can we develop or, or separate out that mixed profile? And it did take a number of years before forensic science advanced, and we were able to do that. It was almost four more years before they had the technology they needed. In 2008, they re-examined the towel. It had two different types of DNA on it, but they had never been able to identify the second person. Detective Superintendent Phil James says that was about to change. Then in 2008, we find that magic solution, and it's that final bit of that jigsaw where... Scientists say, look, we can now separate out those two bits of DNA. We can now separate Heather's out and we can identify whose DNA that is. And that DNA, that separated out from that towel, belongs to Daniello Restivo. Investigators now had enough corroboration to charge Restivo with the murder of Heather Barnett. 
And in March of 2010, a remarkable discovery was made that would seal the case and Restivo's fate. At the stage when Restivo was first charged, Elisa Clapp's body had not in fact been found, and so we proceeded purely on the UK evidence. However, on the 17th of March, 2010, Elisa's body was discovered in the loft in the church in Potenza, where it in fact it had been since she disappeared on the 12th of September, 1993. When Elisa's body was found in the church that Daniello and Elisa had met outside of and had been in, it was decided that myself and another officer would immediately fly over to Italy to try and work with the Italian police because we wanted to look at the similarities between the murder scene of Elisa and our murder scene because, as far as we were concerned, Daniela Restivo had murdered both individuals. We were allowed to go down to Salerno, which is the main city near Potenza, and we were allowed to speak to some of the scientists, and lo and behold, there were things like hair in Elisa's hand, the same as there were in, in, in Heather's case, and it started to make a bit more sense. The police were having quite a hard time of it, getting enough evidence together to be able to, to meet that, that threshold, to be able to secure a, a conviction. But then when Eliza's body was discovered, you've got these two women, thousands of miles and 17 years apart, but they're connected by one thing, and that's Restivo. So Restivo's signature is quite evident in both cases. So both of the women have hair in their hands. Both of them have their trousers pulled down. So this is quite a distinct thing in itself. Here is a case where the offender has spent time with both of these victims. But the crucial difference for me is that whilst Eliza's body was hidden, Heather's body was displayed. He got to the point in his offending here where he's saying, hey, look at me. So this is somebody who's evolved over time and, and it's really, really concerning. This is somebody who's not going to stop unless they're caught. Although UK police could not charge Restivo with the murder of Elisa Claps, connecting him to her murder solidified their case in relation to the murder of Heather Barnett. Even though he'd never been tried in Italy for that crime, we adduced all the evidence in relation to Elisa Clapp's murder in order to prove him guilty of Heather Barnett's murder. In May 2011, police charged Danilo Restivo with the murder of Heather Barnett. We've arrested Daniello Restivo on a number of occasions, and we've always also lived with the concern that he's also so dangerous he's likely to kill again and eventually the case is solved and we've got that magic solution and we've got that final piece of the jigsaw. It had been almost 20 years since Restivo murdered Elisa Claps, but in the end, it was that case that would be the deciding factor when he faced judge and jury. He had always thought he was cleverer than everybody else, but now that didn't matter. He wasn't cleverer than everybody else. He wasn't cleverer than us. We had beaten him and we'd solved the case. And because the evidence was so powerful and overwhelming, it did make him look like an idiot in terms of some of his responses. Whereas before, he could show that bluster and he could say, it's not me. Well, when he said that now, it was meaningless because the evidence was overwhelming and it did prove it was him. The jury retired and returned the verdict on the same day and thereafter Restivo was sentenced. There is, of course, 
satisfaction that justice has been done, but I think really an overwhelming feeling of sadness that two people had died wholly unnecessarily to satisfy his lust for killing. In June 2011, Restivo was found guilty of the murder of Heather Barnett. The UK jury was unable to charge him with the murder of Elisa Claps. He was given a life sentence and a whole life tariff, or life without parole. And in November of the same year, a court in Salerno, Italy, found him guilty of the murder of 16-year-old Elisa Claps. Restivo later appealed the charge made by the UK courts, and they ruled to change his conviction to a life sentence with a minimum of 40 years. However, it was stated that it was highly improbable that Restivo would ever be released. Since his imprisonment, Restivo's name has been linked with other murders, but no additional charges have been brought. With someone like Restivo, with that very specific MO, with two cases so far apart and so similar, there has to be more. We need to look very carefully into the past of Danilo Restivo because he must have struck elsewhere. Heather Barnett was a, a local woman in Bournemouth. She was a, a mother to two children. And, and that's one of the things that I find quite annoying about cases like Restivo. When you've got such a, a grotesque and such a, a unique murderer, there's a tendency to forget the victims and, and they become known as, as the victims of Restivo. These two women, Elisa and Heather, were individuals in their own right. They, they had lives, they had families, they had futures, and, and that was callously taken away by Restivo. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, we would love it if you'd leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. On December 8, 1982, a Polish farmer snuck up behind a 24-year-old woman walking home alone. He then pulled out a hammer and hit her in the back of the head again and again and again. Well, he would attack his victims quite savagely uh, with a hammer, and sometimes he'd, he'd completely obliterate their face. She would be the final victim in a string of grisly attacks and murders that struck fear into Polish women for almost a decade by a man known only as the Scorpion. <laughs>